As a disclaimer, the views and comments made during this podcast are our own. Do not represent any entity that we volunteer with or employed by. Hey everyone, welcome to the List of Medic, a podcast where we discuss geopolitics, national security, whole bunch of nonsense over beers. Recording on September 11th, 2018, in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Ryan Young, and joining me tonight is... Kevin Truitt, Robert Thomas, and Lex Cardone. And Ryan, thanks everyone for joining us again tonight. Um, so yes, we are recording on September 11th. We are not, as much as it would make sense for us to do that, um... We did that last year. It'd be kind of repetitive, and I doubt our views would uh, change too much on that. If you want, you can go on our SoundCloud or iTunes page and check them out. Check it out. It's um, 16 years later, 9-11 and its implications. Uh, we talk about all that kind of stuff in Afghanistan. A ton about Afghanistan. I completely forgot we did that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been like a year. Um, yeah, we did it, I think, like the 10th or 12th or something like that last year. But now, actually, we're doing, we're doing something we've been wanting to talk about for a while. Um... The, the situation in China with the Uyghurs. So one of the interesting things about this topic is there is kind of an interesting connection to today's date, uh, which is that, of course, the United States and its allies have been involved in the global war on terror ever since September 11th, yeah. 2001, yeah. and... China is one of a number of countries that have at various points in time attempted to kind of attach themselves to the momentum of that in order to gain support for how they've approached their own domestic issues that relate to Muslim populations. It's not oppression, we're just doing counterterrorism, God. But before we jump to that, our beers this evening... Something I've been looking forward to for a while. Very special. Oh, God. And I was really excited for it. Or Mike's Hard Lemonade. Natural Bohemian Crab Shack Shandy. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Total I... Wine in Boston finally started selling Crab Shack Shandy? Yeah. So it's... It's it made by any bill. It's... So it's Old Bay flavored beer? I have no idea. But I don't think it's Old Bay flavored. It's just, just crab flavored. Crab which beer. is Old Bay. Crab. Pretty much. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I got your reference there. Yes. I'm just glad that this one doesn't involve the testicles of any large sea mammals, unlike the Icelandic beer that you brought. You keep knocking it out, but like it wasn't good. It wasn't. It, it was. wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> the one good thing I can say about it is it did not taste like balls. It was. Yeah. Like, How did you know that, Lex? <laughs> but it smelled like shit. <laughs> oh yeah, there you go. That's an ironic compliment to it. Honestly, it's, it's backhanded, but it's still a compliment. All right. Let's like, see how the uh, crabs taste. There's no crab taste. It tastes like lemonade. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. It basically just tastes like lemonade. Did you know it was going to taste like that? No, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I, had no, I had no idea. I'm so is this, is this like, basically the idea of it is like, what you drink alongside crabs? I guess. I, I, mean, mean, it's it's a, crabs. I mean, it's a summer shandy. Yeah, so. it's, just, it's, cra- it's crab thing since Maryland. I mean, come on. It's, I yeah. guess that's the, what they're going for. I, I don't understand why street. the crab isn't on your state flag. Should be just like a giant. It is, however, just like a giant crab with two claws up in their middle fingers. Like fuck all you. That is, however, <laughs> tattooed on Ryan's chest. For those of you yeah. who can't see so it right yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, I, we should get a petition together. Welcome to Maryland. Yeah. We have crabs. <laughs> <laughs> this new state motto. 
<laughs> pretty much. It's oh, a little sweet. Yeah. It's a shandy. Yeah, it's it's a shandy. Uh, I prefer normal yeah. natty. I definitely prefer... I mean, I'm sad to say that I definitely prefer normal natty bow over this. Yeah. Um, that's, that's and now I have a 12 pack it. of this. Well, it is, for the record, described on the can as a premium malt beverage with natural <laughs> flavors ah. rather than as a real beer. Oh boy, what a shandy. <laughs> oh boy, That's what a, a shame. bad joke. <laughs> oh boy, what a shame. <laughs> I think this might also give us all diabetes. But. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, already on the track. The Natty Boat guy, why does the Natty Boat guy only have one eye? Did he like lose he's it winking. in a tragic... A like, crab took the other one. Exactly. A, a tragic crab-eating accident. He's just winking. Except you can't see it. Except... Alright, well... Well, have you ever seen, you ever seen the actual um, mask guy who walks around like Baltimore Stadium and stuff? Yeah, it looks terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like an evil... It's like, this is what scares children in the Baltimore region. <laughs> uh, not only that. that. <laughs> Don't mess with one-eyed Willie. One-eyed Willie? It's that's his name, but anyway. No, it could be. It's not, it's Bo, but... <laughs> William Bo. Regard. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> just crushing it. Yeah, yes, forever. <laughs> I was like, I was just, I said B fifty two opening the Bombay doors, so like, <laughs> riding it all the way down, baby. Yep. Christ. Anyway, <laughs> so something more uplifting than Kevin's terrible yeah. jokes. Um, yeah. So before we kind of kick off exactly what's been happening, Rob, do you want to go over to who the exactly Uyghurs are and why we're talking about them tonight? So the Uyghurs are. An ethnically Turkish, well, Turkic uh, population. It's a broader ethnic group than just Turkey. Uh, that is the majority population, at least for now, in the far northwest of China, a region called Xinjiang. Uh, you may also hear East Turkestan from a lot of more independence-minded movements there. And they're a predominantly Muslim ethnic group that's been there for a very long time. The Turkic peoples are from Central Asia, and this is kind of where China meets Central Asia. And they just happened to be on the wrong side of the border when it was made. Well, okay. well, when they were conquered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the history of Xinjiang coming into the control of the Chinese government is a product of a lot of fits and starts and conquests over many many years. Much like Tibet, uh, it's it's not something that has been part of the Chinese sphere for five thousand years or something. It's uh, an area that has, in more recent centuries, been gradually kind of consolidated as Chinese, part of the country. The Chinese would probably disagree and claim that it was a tribute state. Or yeah. well, you can claim that anything is a tribute state that doesn't make it part of China. Oh yeah, I know. I mean. They could claim that Britain was a tribute state because of British diplomats bringing gifts at one point. That's how the tributary system worked. Yeah. It was very different from European diplomatic models. Mm-hmm. But they use a lot of that to claim areas like that. Yeah. Which doesn't make it a good one. No, no, I'm not saying it does, but they use it. So, it's... so basically about, yeah, so ethnic minority in China, probably Han uh, Chinese, mostly in the coastal areas, right? Okay. Is that... Yeah, so so the, the, the Han Chinese ethnic group is the majority in the country, which, for the record, is an ethnicity that is itself 
uh, a result of population movements and intermarriage uh, over thousands of years, Uh, not some group that's from one spot that has always been in one spot. Interbred. Um, But one of, I mean, one dynamic of what's going on in Xinjiang and Tibet is that the government in Beijing has made a point of trying to move more ethnically Han Chinese into those areas to counterbalance these other ethnic groups. And people in the West may be more familiar with the Tibet situation. And in a lot of ways, they're very similar, but they also have some significant differences in between Mm -hmm. in how both the historical relationship between Tibet and China proper and how the current People's Republic has sort of... um, tried to use both, I mean, for lack of a better word, the carrot and the stick, to... Well, it's also, like, I think, they've, it, it's been easier to look at the type of situation because you have had the Dalai Lama, uh-huh. and it's been like, oh, here's a person that's like, not a name, or, you know, it's like, someone to associate with that situation rather than Zhang, which is just... So, well, just before we get too much into the yeah. weeds here... Uh, I don't want to beat around the bush. The reason that we're talking oh, yeah. about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs is not just that they are an ethnic and religious minority in China that has complicated dynamics. That's true of, of many peoples and places in China. Yeah. The reason that we're talking about it right now is because the Chinese Communist Party and the sort of party state apparatus have, in the last couple of years launched and expanded a multi-pronged campaign to assert control that has involved moving hundreds of thousands, perhaps as many as a million people into re-education slash concentration camps that the UN has finally recently called them out on, although the party and state Insist that they are not real, uh, despite Tons extraordinary of amounts of documentation on this, including internal documents that have been found. Yeah. Uh, they even use the parties. words, you know, work camps, re- or they use the words re-education camps in their internal party documents to so, describe these and, places. Well, and, and so, so they've been putting enormous numbers of people in camps. They have crafted the world's most sophisticated high-tech surveillance state. Uh, that includes facial recognition, constant surveillance cameras, DNA and blood sampling of everyone, and checkpoints everywhere you go, including to the just sh- out shopping. Uh, they've crafted that in Xinjiang with the help of many of the tech companies in China. And American and, tech companies, too, of... Well, in, in this, directly play in, a role. Well, well, I mean, there's IP theft, yeah. certainly, <laughs> uh, but but most mostly it's it's been domestic companies that have actively um, backed this yeah. as a normal line of business. Yeah. Yeah. And and lastly, Blue they've Blue. they've sought very 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 aggressively to tamp down on any journalistic coverage or other news of what they're doing particularly through threatening to imprison or harm the family members of activists of, of Uyghurs yeah, who, are, who are either 
still in country or outside of the country trying to write on this topic. <clears throat> yeah, it's, they've completely blacked out the internet, so it's it's um, it's it's difficult. It's very difficult for sources that journalists have cultivated for the past years over the past year or two um, to basically know what happened to people who they they have been in contact with in Xinjiang. It's I mean it's essentially turned into a very Orwellian situation where they literally Yeah, you look up the word you look up the word Orwellian in a dictionary. This is Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is this is nineteen eighty four with Chinese characteristics. Yeah. (laughs) It's it it's when they finally have the technology to do it. Yeah, well they facial recognition, um I mean even they stop people at police checkpoints and Force them to look like show their show the pictures on their phone. Oh no, they have automated scanners. Oh, that's yeah, that's to, right. Now. To just dump the data from smartphones right. at the police station, so they don't you don't have to unlock it for them. Yeah, and this has all come. I mean, this technology has really come online in the last few years, which is one of the big reasons why that um, all of this was even possible. Right? Could they have done this without the technology? The technology aspect. They Just could. They, I mean, up. they could have put people in camps, but they could not have constructed the surveillance state that right. they've been constructing. Yeah, uh, that's been would a been, new development. Yeah, it wouldn't have been as efficient or systematic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, to, to have that reach was not technologically possible before a number of developments in the last five to ten years, including advancements in AI and machine learning and big data analysis to sift through enormous amounts of surveillance material, plus the ubiquitousness of smartphones and the ability to put cameras everywhere under the sun and advancements in facial recognition, DNA analysis. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was in our lifetimes that the human genome in general, was first sequenced and it was a massive project and now you can spit in a tube for a private company, send yeah. it in, and Your in a few weeks can... get get back at least somewhat accurate <laughs> results and on you, what your ancestry or, is and maybe yeah. some other information. If your brother was a serial killer like Golden State guy in the 60s, then... Then you can participate. Then you can interest Exactly. Really, civic action at its best. <laughs> And but in, in fairness though, this is I mean, this is one of the most horrible situations going on in the world right now, in my opinion. But there were there is I think we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't talk about the history of separatism in Xinjiang, including the Islamic well, so, East Turkestan Islamic Party. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the two versions we've kind of seen is the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, which is associated is a called terrorist group um, by multiple entities. I think definitely by China. I think us. Like, the U.S. several other entities, you know, other organizations and countries call them this. Essentially, they just want they want their own Islamic like emirate in the East yeah. Pakistan area and like parts of like, the neighboring countries. And like they they people, they mean China definitely blows them up portion of being like this evil. Like, they're like, they're like it's like the Islamic State coming to Mosul. How they they portray them. Yeah, and they're nowhere near that. Like, I think the last they're very they really ragtag had. and sort of spontaneous well, in terms of what I, they've I done. I mean, from what we've seen, they are. I mean, from what we have seen, at least big picture globally, they are a real terrorist organization that is they've sent that is harmful and toxic yeah. and has has hurt and killed people uh-huh. uh, and has malicious ideology. Yes, but. 
in terms of actual scope and scale, they're like Uncle Joe's River Shack of terrorism, <laughs> right. not like the Walmart Great or Amazon.com of terrorism yeah. that has any sort of meaningful reach or logistical yeah. capacity or or degree of actual threat associated with them that the the Chinese Communist Party portrays. And that's where yeah, and they and they're a small front. Going back to what you were saying about the relationship to 9-11, the um, sort of worldwide, you know, fight against Islamic terrorism that we kicked off after the event of 17 years ago. Um, a lot of countries have been trying to sort of portray themselves as, you know, ride that wave. And they've been they've been basically saying these guys are, you know, the same as Al-Qaeda, you know. Well, it's, and they have, the, it's, they have similar ideology, yeah, but it's, they're saying, like, th- these guys are, you know, we're, they're the same, this is the same fight that you guys are in. But they're portraying it as, like, 10,000 ISIS members are crossing the border every, and, you right. know. Well, and, and I mean, the, I think the crucial difference is that, is it completely justified to identify and neutralize the threat posed by actual members of a terrorist organization mm-hmm. like ETIM? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, they are a real terrorist organization that that threatens to kill people and does engage in violence and should be tamped down on. The distinction is between that normal security operation and using that as the fig leaf to engage in a crackdown against an entire ethnic and religious group attempting to purge their culture and religious beliefs, which is what's What's, actually happened. Anything, any, you know, basic, either whether it's a local weird cultural practice or a Muslim religious practice, it's deemed... Disloyalty or suspect. In yeah. Some way. So and it's so yeah. It's it's Hence. part of. I mean, China's done this in Tibet to some extent too. But it's part of this sort of. I mean, when you look at Mao's uh, sort of his policies, and it's sort of a, a, to some extent a continuation of that, trying to make China more heterogeneous or he- homogeneous. Yeah. Um, and so what you're seeing is like, for instance, uh, they bulldoze or at least shut down mosques. Um, they, you're not allowed to name your children Muhammad. You can't read the Quran. They cut, they force you to cut your beard. So they, they're trying to cut out a lot of the traditional Muslim or local Uyghur customs and and, and well, and, and they forcing people to drink and well, eat pork. Yeah, they, they, uh, yeah. I mean, they they force people to to drink and to eat pork and to renounce God mm-hmm. and pledge allegiance to the Communist Party, particularly in the camps, but sometimes in more right. individualized harassment cases. But, so, I mean, two things that I, I note about this. One is that this is the most egregious case of this right now, mm. but it does not exist in isolation. Um, we are seeing a, a major crackdown on religion writ large in China right now. I, if you look more closely, there are current news reports about a, an increasing number of Churches being demolished, defaced, mm-hmm. having having Christians yeah. uh, harassed and prosecuted on on various grounds, uh, and we've of course seen this happen with Buddhists in Tibet for a very long period of time. But another thing that I that I note though is, I mean, we talk about about Mao, um, 
but Mao is a is a unique figure in many ways. Sometimes the Chinese Communist Party kind of teeters towards some of his ideas and sometimes it doesn't. But what it has remained to a degree that's really under-recognized in the West, I think, is a fundamentally ideologically Leninist party. Mm-hmm. And the, the part of the basis of mm-hmm. Leninism is you have an elite vanguard that enforces right thinking on a populace that doesn't know what's best for it in order to bring about a revolution even when the population doesn't know what it needs. And so it relies on a much more top-down, aggressive, ideological Mm -hmm. level of control than I think most people ever bother to recognize when they talk about the Chinese Communist Party. And one of the most fascinating things for me, at least, is the language that they use to describe, even in the official, you know, or the denials of the concentration camp system that the official party organs put out, the language they use is not too dissimilar from the language used to describe mental illness when it comes to anyone having it's disloyalty or religious, you know. I, I think it's somewhere between language used to describe mental illness and the language that used talk of epidemiology and disease yeah. and contagion right. to talk about ethnic minorities, including the Jews in Nazi, fascist, and other totalitarian countries in the past. There is, I think, a very common tendency to epidemiologize things, to talk about people as though they are either vectors of diseases or diseases right. themselves when you're yeah. threatened by them. And this isn't even something they're hiding. They're... That, that language is very front and center. Right. It's, it's in published yeah. material. Yeah. It's also, it seems to be kind of widely accepted to a certain extent, at least publicly. They're saying it. They're not trying to hide it, at least. They're saying it very, like, yeah. here's what this is. And, like, no one cares. And, like, no one's doing anything really about it. Like, you, you've seen no reactions from most, like, Muslim-majority countries who's like, anything else happens, like, anywhere yeah. else. Yeah. Free, well, like, yeah. well, it's like, oh, look at that. So, yeah, Kevin, tell us about that. Oh. Sweet China money. <laughs> so, so, actually, there's... So, traditionally, I mean, China's long had been punishing its Turkic populations. Yeah. Traditionally Turkey or as yeah. you know, a Turkic you know, Turkic the yeah. Turkish state yeah. um, saw itself sort of as the protector of the Turks and the Turkic peoples, or it envisioned itself as sort of yeah. creating this pan Turkic union. I mean this is all yeah. this predates Erdogan and the Islamists in power, but so uh, that was always sort of a big thing for Turkey, and so there they for a long time they were allowing Uyghurs to come, and dissident Uyghurs to stay in their country. They'd give them visas, they'd give them citizenships. Um, but recently, what you've seen because China's tied its uh, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, and Turkey's one of the going to be one of the recipients has already gotten some money, um, and sort of Erdogan and the AKP right now are for a long time they were doing the same thing as the Turkey has traditionally done with. Uyghurs allowing them in, but recently they started arresting them and deporting them back to China, like these dissidents who, of course, you're going to deport them back and they're going to go to jail. Um, and probably so, camp. probably or, never or, be heard from yeah, again. Well, yeah. camp, jail, you know, maybe, maybe die in that camp. Yeah, yeah, because it's very, it's you fell and from this the is building. Just, and this is what's the? I mean, is this just a money question, or has there been some diplomatic back channels to 
you know, Erdogan. I, oh, Erdogan yeah. Just, I, like, what? So I think the Turkey and Erdogan and Turkey more broadly is seeing that is being opportunistic and seeing, right. you know, we have more to gain from aligning ourselves with China than, you know, what is this Turkic Union stuff? Yeah. You know, it's it. Okay, we feel bad, but and we've talked about this in other context, right? We we talked about this um, in another context where sort of Islamic countries or countries where Islam is a predominant religion haven't really been paying that much attention to this because it's sort of opportunistic and it's like, well, we could identify with them, but China's got a lot of money and we don't want to. Well, it's, you know, they're, they're it's, rising power. They, they've ignored... I mean, they've, they've been all about condemning everything in Myanmar, if the Rohingya Bill, if the Uyghurs... Well, well, I, I mean, mean, not to the degree that they do Palestine, for oh, example. Oh, of course not. Pa- yeah. one, and there, I think there are a couple reasons for that's that. Do, that's, one, that's domestic politics. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, th- I think one level is domestic politics. Um, one level is, is actual information access. I mean, you mm-hmm. talk to the average person in... Not just any Muslim majority country, but any country in the world, they have no idea what is going on yeah. with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. It's a very it, the, 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 I mean, a it's a geographically relatively isolated region yeah. whose main links to the rest of the world, ironically, are through China's Belt and Road infrastructure yeah. initiatives, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why they care so much about tight yeah. control over it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, so there's, but, a, there's a good amount of oil there, correct? Or not a good ton, but it's like p- potentially. They, yeah, but there's, there's potentially else. some resource stuff there. But of course, the, I mean, the, the, let's the, let's be fair. The the Chinese government is especially kind of cagey and desperate at any chance to yeah, find yeah. Um, carbon-based fuel resources in its yeah. own territory because it's very, 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 very concerned about. The possibility of ever being blockaded yeah. because it's so import dependent for fuel. So. Precious needs it. <laughs> Which we talked about in our when we talked about China. So, so on the yeah, yeah, yeah get, getting back so. getting back to the Arab Street. So even when this was a big thing in Turkey and all over, there really has I mean, there has outside of a specific activist circles in the Arab and Muslim greater Muslim world, there really hasn't been that much movement. And what what about in China? Is there you know any Type of news getting out. <laughs> I, that sounds like a dumb question. Well, it probably is. But so I mean, the one of the biggest sources of of news coming out about it originally was was Voice of America, ah. uh, which had a lot of local, mm-hmm. uh, including ethnically Uyghur journalists themselves, and very quickly the uh, the party state made a move to try to crack down as much as possible on that. Largely by threatening the families of the journalists involved. I mean, it's the same thing with any other journalist. There's, it's more targeted. You know, Muslim, well, and, yeah, and, and, and I mean, in that case, your average Uyghur outside of yeah outside of the region, most if not all of their family is still there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and is is therefore it's I mean it's like shooting fish in a barrel in terms of threatening and coercing people. You've got all of the targets. To harm them right in front of you, yeah, and, and they have no compulsion, compulsion about doing it. Like oh no, they'll, they'll, they'll make your well. brother yeah. disappear. They'll make your yeah. old mom. It's not disappear. just the threat. Yeah. No, I mean the, the the number of stories about that are already going around about the elderly parents and relatives of activists and journalists 
who have now not just been in prison but have died in the camps right because of inadequate medical care like that's not like a one off that's that's a pattern now uh, and it's it's revolting and horrifying yeah it's just a million people there's 11 million or so Uyghurs that get estimated it's like 10 to 11 million like in China at least 1 million are in jail or in, the, or in these re-education camps which are essentially these it's not voluntary it's not something like oh it's a concentration camp yeah I'm not, I'm not going to fat camp you know where I'm like oh I need to try to help myself it's like you're going to this you're being forced to go to this place and be where they're forcing pork and yeah and, you know, or, or even before there's like stories like they're like oh you know they basically add things of like if Han Chinese will marry into Uyghurs so they can try to like almost breed them out which is another kind yeah. of fucked up situation yeah. that's been eugenics is not dead as an idea no. yeah it's not and it's just it takes different yeah. mutated forms uh, over time. So, <laughs> but it's crazy, just like the, the the length of the, the you know the Chinese diplomatic and economic sort of the tentacles that go out. I mean, no one's immune to it. Like we're look at what's happened to the Free Tibet movement in the past ten years. We they have been ignored by successive American administrations. Well, and, and so there are, <laughs> and so there are ways in which this this concept of of other people's reaction. And of the relevance of this to the rest of the world, aside from straight up moral concerns, uh, varies and fluctuates. Because on the one hand, the influence and weight that China has accumulated in economics, security affairs, and diplomacy in the last two years, um, in the last two years, but also the last ten and yeah. also the last twenty mm-hmm. in in phases, has has of course made a lot of governments particularly cagey about about raising a stink or even about caring when they do something that they morally shouldn't be doing. But another layer is that there is blowback and sometimes in, in times and places that you wouldn't expect. Like one of the areas where you are now like very, very recently, like last couple days, seeing growing protests about the Uyghur situation, Bangladesh, in Dhaka. Hmm. Uh, and, I mean, you look at the at the South and Southeast Asian countries, all the same, all the same they've got a lot of additional vantage point. Yeah, this. and also in Bangladesh, they're like, oh yeah, kick all the Rohingya out. Instead of well, Myanmar. And, and a lot of it, I mean, a lot of the... This could be a flashpoint for a lot of... There are a lot of other grievances that grievances with China that we yeah. talked about in our Belt and Road episode in a lot of countries that have Muslim populations, whether it be in the stands or in you know Bangladesh or uh, Malaysia or, uh, and so or Indonesia. Yeah. So you see a lot of these countries, and th- this may not be the this may not really be like an important issue for them, but it it will motivate them if they sort of catch if the, they catch the flame. They yeah. Catch so fire that- fuel. So that's why I kind of wanted to change directions a, a little bit because <laughs> we're talking about like oh, what they're doing is terrible and yes it is. You know, they, 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 ETM or ETIM has existed. They're a real terrorist group. I think the last attack they really had was you know was like or, or like not even of, of notice was like two years ago in Kyrgyzstan. They they tried to attack the U.S. Uh, the sorry the Chinese embassy. Set up a bomb, hurt three people, driver died obviously. And there's uh, rumors of them like. Pairing up the Taliban and doing stuff like that, or or sending guys to Syria, but it's like, if they were worried about terrorism, that was the reason they were doing all this shit. They're definitely gonna get terrorism out of this. 
you're gonna push people to a fucking terrible who will do terrible fucking shit over this in reaction because like if nothing else to lose you're gonna do dumb things but I think they they're all in prison well I, I think the Chinese communist parties 11 million people in prison well, well right. if anybody can do it yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I. But but honestly, I think the the Chinese Communist Party's bet. They've they've seen where things have gone well or poorly in other countries, but I think a big part of their bet is is a a faith in their ability to exert a more pervasive and finer level of social control than anyone else in the world can do, and. The way they see it, they've done a pretty damn good job of tamping down on potential sources of major dissent in the ethnic Han heartland and along the, the major wealthy urban areas of the coast. And so they, I imagine they figure, why should we assume that we can't get the equation right in places like Xinjiang and Tibet as well. And yeah. and so I think a lot of it is, look, we're, I mean, with BRI going through that area, it's, well, we'll improve the economic situation enough where most people, you know, if you're not in the camps, or, you know, they, people in the camps keep people out of the camps from wanting to end up in the camps, and you're economically sort of comfortable enough, and then as you're moving, you know, re resettling yeah. Han Chinese, in that area so you can blend the ethnicity so there's no longer a you know for i don't want to use the term foreign but no longer a my a large minority population there it's the han chinese occupation yeah oh it's like it's like what the french instead of in algeria with, sort instead of. of dealing with the majority <laughs> which didn't end well by the way yeah, yeah. algeria's <laughs> france yeah <laughs> instead of dealing with a restless you know regional majority you're dealing with a restless regional minority you know that's easier when Another thing I think that's that's really, really, really crucial here is that none of what we are talking about with this approach to heavy-handed top-down control, the surveillance state, the police coercion, any of it, none of this is new or surprising. I mean, to the average person who thinks they know or have an opinion on foreign policy because they've read five news articles in the last five minutes. Um, hey, sure, maybe up. this maybe this surprises them. I had to cram for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but All right, it took ten minutes. He's a slow reader. Yeah, you, this is true. I mean, we have to give you some some discount here. But but I mean, <laughs> college boy. But I mean, realistically, the idea of this kind of pseudo-scientific social management and the eventual use of technology to make it more fine-grained and more universally able to reach everyone and everything and to really manage hearts and minds rather than just bodies. This is something that this goes back decades I mean, in some ways, it goes back to the entire root of Lenin's political thought, but it's been like a plank of how the Chinese Communist Party has thought about things mm -hmm. since the end of the Cultural yeah. Revolution, when the party started post-Mao actually consolidating control. It's always been 
a core plank of how they've thought about problems and how they've explicitly put things in published governance documents that they should always look for opportunities to get this level of control and reach to manage every fine-grained detail. So we should look at what's happening in Xinjiang as a... I mean, at one level, they focus on it because it's a sensitive potential breakaway region. Yeah. And it matters to them for geopolitical reasons. But beyond that, it's also a pilot project. Oh, yeah. I was, I was suggesting because they're making authoritarian... Like, they're getting... They're going pro in authoritarianism. Like, they're already good. Like, they're... I mean, it's but even just, in technology. Like, AI... Imagine when imagine when AI comes online. Like well, AI me. is online. I mean, but, but even but, like when it really, I mean, now it's in its sort of so early stages. And, and they're exporting that technology. I think Bolivia, or Ecuador, is setting up their that stuff from China yeah. in their countries. Jeez. Imagine if the Bolsheviks had this, like oh, in nineteen seventeen, <laughs> the world population would be much smaller. Yes, <laughs> the gulags would have been more bustling. All of Siberia. <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean it, it's. They're it, they're taking a lot of steps, and it's all their strategic vision. So is anyone going to do anything about it, or in any kind of real significance? I'm not saying we invade China or something and say like that because you don't fight a land war in Asia. But John, John, Donald Trump's going to tweet at them. It's all going to be good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, then then they'll have he's going to summit see, in Singapore somewhere. He's going to see a Fox News special on it, and he's going to tweet about it, and he's going to say. Oh, the Fox News yeah. won't do it. It's, it's not. It's not Christians. Yeah, that's fair. Sure. Yeah. yeah, Muslims. Yeah. Well, yeah. to Fox be News fair, it. Right now, the Muslims are the biggest targets, but Christians they're getting also, to the Christians yeah. fast enough. Yeah. yeah. So, soon. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. The tweet storm will be coming. <laughs> oh. You watch out, China. Well, no, like, um, I think one, in one of the readings, actually, and it was like... It's it, was, it was um that NPR um, thing with Rubio, who was... Uh, NPR interview with... Or some, I forget the person from NPR, but... Um, interviewed Senator Marco Rubio, who was kind of like, yeah, this is a problem, and this is why it is. And like... What are you going to do about it? And he, yeah, he was just like, well, he's like, just, yeah, there was, he was like, he's like, we should be louder about it. But he's, you know, he's like, you can't, I don't know. It was, the, the, like, the Magnitsky the, Act comes up a lot. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a piece of legislation that is already on the books that grants the U.S. government the authority to levy sanctions on individuals engaged in human rights violations. And I'll go officially on the books right now and say... No shit, we should be using Chinese officials involved in this. Like, in I mean, that's most famously been implemented in Russia, where you have well, this, this class of oligarchs <laughs> based on that, and it's very you know, it's much more, much less opaque than like how do you sanction a party? Well, you go after they're di- no, they're they're discrete individuals who are more who are, responsible than well, well, who who are I mean, who are active decision makers in this, right? Uh, and, and I'm not talking about just the, the top the, the level of the top. Chinese government. I mean, there are specific officials whose job title is. I, I'm not. I'm not going. The, the I'm not going to. I'm not going director. to guess. Yeah, I'm not going to guess the the Mandarin verbiage here. But whose job title is basically you're the guy who runs the camps in Xinjiang. Yeah, you're the guy who runs the camps. For that guy in this part of Xinjiang, okay. you're the guy who supplies the surveillance equipment for the fe- people who are figuring out who to put in the camps in Xinjiang. Sounds like a hell of a networking event they've got going. It's like a bike. <laughs> so this is the business bi- cards. So, so, so yeah, so it just raises. Vice- oh, you're Chinese Gestapo. I'm Chinese Gestapo. <laughs> it's the the, vi- the viceroy of Xinjiang. Like, <laughs> well, I well, that's well, a, not just one. It's a it's a whole network of yeah discrete people that you can absolutely identify. Like. Okay. 
the names are already there. Public so it, just, so it just comes down to will. Political will. Right. I mean, the U.S. is barely paying attention to what goes on yeah. at the edges of our own borders, let alone right. in Yeah, the Canadians are fucking us over, Rob. It's important. We are very concerned about the uh, great Maybe waves so. of uh, weaponized moose and polar bears. <laughs> yes. That, that poutine infecting the arteries of our kids. I'm pretty sure. More than McDonald's. So. Which it's, is great it's, because it's American. Yeah. Yeah. The poutine has already taken so many years off my life. I <laughs> suffer so. Yeah. But, but, but even... So, even with that, will that actually matter? Like, will, will that will that stop... Any, yeah, exactly. But, like, will, will it actually stop the camps? It won't. So, well, so, I mean... It depends. Yeah, it depends who you go after. I mean, it could be to some level deterrent. I mean, most of these people, not really, but, you know, a lot of these authoritarian regimes, for instance, Russia, you know, they're more of a mafia state than yeah. China is, whereas it's more... But, like, the you pressure them and that's a, that's a weak point in a lot of these and places. And it does also kind of indirectly get the word out, because what we're seeing in Russia is everybody is aware of how corrupt their state is everybody knows the players involved and the, the you know the cronyism that's going on i feel like in china they're not so and if you get that and even if you get the response saying these evil westerners are you know defaming us with this uh these lies maybe you know oh are they lies are they you know right i mean i i think there there are two things here one is noting that the Chinese state apparatus is much more dependent on international trade right. than the Russians are mm-hmm. and has really skated by on people kind of having a rose-tinted glasses view of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party and, and thinking that. as long as we <laughs> as long as we play nice with them and trade with them they will be integrated into the international system yeah. and will liberalize like everyone else and game. it will be fine <laughs> it didn't um, go that way <laughs> and, and and it has not gone that way and and so i mean frankly a there are there is no quick fix that will decisively get them to stop doing this but there are pain points that we can push mm-hmm. and we should absolutely yeah. be pushing them to at least on the margin see if we can help steer them away from this kind of behavior. And frankly, we need to be doing that not thinking about this issue in isolation, but from the fact that they are doing this because they are a Leninist party that believes that they need to ideologically control every facet of the lives, thoughts, and behavior of everyone in the country in order to go where the country needs to go and they will never ever ever be possible to engage with in a a friendly peer-to-peer liberal way genuinely until they get off that leninist track and then the the second piece is recognizing all this stuff is exportable and we need to inoculate the rest of the world to it as best we can by flagging how toxic it is and getting people looking for shortcuts and countermeasures to combat the kinds of surveillance technologies and behaviors that they're engaging in. We've, we've got to not just get them to stop doing what they're doing there, but find ways to stop other 
countries or groups from employing the same no, technology like I, elsewhere. Like I said, they're already kind of exporting it to South America. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was a hell of a speech, Coach. Put me in. <laughs> USA. So we're basically running out of time, so I want to pose one question and then we can kind of end. At what extent do we think it's a possibility they escalate the camps to the point where it's not... I don't want to say mass mass execution because that's kind of that's very that's ethnic cleansing. Yeah, it's very excessive, but it's like when does that kind of situation start, and when does do we figure that out, and what do we do if that gets to that point? Because like, at what point do they realize like, well, we can't. They're not gonna fucking all become loyal servants of the party, and that it's easy. It's you know, it's not affordable. It's not efficient or affordable to keep them in jail or camp. Well, the apparatus is certainly in place if they wanted to go down that yeah. route. Having said that, I would say that I feel like they're having enough success tamping down things now. And the sort of indirect cultural genocide of, you know, encouraging migration yeah. and, you know, um, you know, attacking cultural ba- bases and stuff like that. But, like, the only way I could see that really coming to fruition is in some sort of reaction to an external, um, I don't know, pressure that that sort of backfires in some way. I, I, I don't really know how, to, how yeah. I would describe the, it. The fighters like, from yeah. Syria come home? Yeah, yeah or, so, or, or an economic shock that we need some scapegoat to, if, you know. It, I mean, honestly, it would, I, I think right now they're in a pretty good place. It would take, I think Lex is right, it would take something either some sort of insta- destabilizing event, either economic or within the region itself or elsewhere, or a broader conflict. Yeah. I mean, you look at Nazi Germany actually didn't start it. Like, yeah. Executing the Jews in the Holocaust till the world first or second world war was already underway. So it's one of those things where want, everything was in place, but I want Rob to end on this or, but the, uh, also the, he was discussing the impact of sanctions before, you know, that has had, and, and I think, China is very vulnerable to them in a lot of ways, um, you know, more so, obviously more so than Russia or anything else like that. And that is really a tool that could, you know, provoke some sort of positive change, but it could also provoke even more turtling up and, you Camp know, still exists there's no one in it. Yeah. I mean, what prompted the Japanese really to invade or to, you know, take over the Southeast or the yeah. Dutch colonies or attack Pearl Harbor? It was the... The embargoes yeah. for well, their behavior. They were they were getting a little um, out of control well before mm-hmm. any of these embargoes. Their the history of the Pacific <laughs> yeah. War is interesting of itself. But my take on your question, Ryan, would be that to the extent that the party state apparatus remains in control in a relatively status quo fashion they are much more likely to let the most belligerent uh, resistors to their indoctrination campaign die in the camps on their own of natural causes, of malnutrition, of of general neglect and lack of health care, what have you, than to actively kill them if things remain relatively under their control. But the danger here, uh, as is true of much of Chinese domestic policy, is how much 
the Chinese Communist Party has, in its relative retreat from openly communist policy, used nationalism and ethno-nationalism yeah. to shore things up. Mm-hmm. And they have stoked a lot of yeah. really aggressive racism, xenophobia, and Islamophobia on this particular issue and towards this particular group of people over the last several years. And you can, I think, very much see a situation where the reins of control slip just enough that when decisions are made at a more local level, whether by government decision makers at a lower level of authority, camp commandants, for example, uh, or other local interest groups where you can see a slide into a more overt form of ethnic cleansing as a form of racial, ethnic, or cultural panic. That is very much a possibility in the event that the party, instead of their position changing its position, ends up simply yeah. losing managerial control over a monster that it's already created. Yeah. Kind of, I mean, there are cracks in the facade right now in, you know, debating what you want about the wisdom of the U.S. sanctions that are and may be coming against China. They're causing a lot of consternation among... You know the Chinese elite. Are we handling this the right way? Are we pretending to, it's not? Are we not responding? So there's a there's a faction of people who are you know not as um, high on Xi Jinping as his external president for life. Yeah, no, the, the, he, he yeah he's at this point most people see him as untouchable. But what if he's not one day? What if the wheels come he's, off? He's not now. Yeah, he's. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's that's yeah. the thing. I mean the the. The Chinese party state apparatus and its leaders are always both more resilient and more vulnerable than Americans and Europeans tend to assume, depending on which lens you use. Well, it's also hot take. You know, yeah. you you fall a lot further if you if you lose your position in the U.S. It's like, oh, well, you know, you either go into the opposition or you <laughs> oh, retire. I think yeah. I consult for yeah. six figures. But oh, you, no. you lose your position <laughs> in the Communist Party, you're probably going to end up in prison. Yeah. Uh, by, especially if you have bush or high enough or dead, poor, poor or dead. yeah well yeah I know <laughs> your car accident brakes gave out yeah it's so they were made in China yeah. <laughs> so if there's one thing that I would leave everyone with after this discussion it is the recognition that none of what we're talking about exists in a vacuum in China or otherwise and it is deeply connected to the fact that Leninism is in the DNA of the Chinese Communist Party, but has taken an ethno-nationalist flavor for reasons of domestic politics. Those two things are not going away on their own, and we need to be vigilant in watching what happens with them and how we respond to them because they are a threat not just to ethnic and religious minorities in China, which they are, but to a whole host of different groups of people and to levers of stability and instability in the world. And we need to watch that. So that was a, a depressing episode of Almost Diplomatic. Uh, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Well, well.